This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. This week's show, this is Mike O'Neill. This week's show was uh, found its origin in, I read an editorial by a teacher by the name of Billy Robb. He teaches high school history in a South Phoenix charter school. And he was sort of discussing the sort of the non-monetary travails of teaching in our schools. And uh, I got to thinking about the subject and uh, asked him to uh, take his editorial and adapt it for uh, audio. And I'm going to play that for you. And then we're going to have a couple of guests discussing that in the rest of the show. Uh, let me let me start and let's let's go ahead with that. Billy Robb, teacher in the South Phoenix area schools. When talking about the travails of classroom teaching, I think it's helpful to start by talking about the joys of classroom teaching, because there's both. Any teacher will tell you that the school year is a roller coaster. There's joys and struggles, feelings of pride and feelings of accomplishment, and feelings of utter demoralization. These peaks and valleys often occurring within hours of each other on the same day. Let's start out by talking about the joys. Teaching is an intellectual profession. Teacher's job is to work with ideas and concepts and to teach skills and to develop the minds of young people. It's an interesting job, and your colleagues are all versed in different areas of expertise, which is a recipe for a vibrant and stimulating workplace. Teaching is also a hope-filled profession. You're working with young people who are looking forward to their future lives as adults. Everything is potential. Teachers get to lay the foundations for the future. The struggles of teaching are natural. Students sometimes resist learning. They get bored. The days drag on. The students also deal with their own personal struggles that can cause tension in a classroom setting, as you can imagine. Sometimes the entire class just gets into a weird mood and every trick you try to pull as a teacher seems to backfire. Another natural challenge of teaching is that every student is going to be at different skill levels and have different interest levels in your subject matter. To engage a class of 20 to 30 students is always going to be a balancing act. You want to help the students with lower skills or less interest to comprehend the material, while at the same time challenging the students with higher skills or higher interest levels to expand their understanding of the material. And the other struggle is that it just gets tiring. All the lesson planning and the papers to grade day after day. I'll just speak for myself in saying that with the job as it's currently designed and the schedule as it currently is, summer vacation is necessary for me to recharge the emotional batteries. But there's something more, something other than the natural joys and struggles, something that causes utter demoralization, something that I think causes most teachers to leave the profession. And that something is the layers of bureaucracy and mandates created by non-educators, mostly politicians, that have come to dominate the lives of public school teachers. It shows up in the form of micromanaging by immediate supervisors, but it's not entirely their fault because school principals and administrators are simply implementing the laws and standards set out by state government. Somehow this awareness is even more demoralizing for teachers. 
because teachers know they cannot rectify the situation within their own schools. There are many examples of mandated micromanaging that I could talk about, but the most damaging to authentic teaching and learning is our system of standardized state testing. Before I lay out the discontents of state testing, let me first address the issues of accountability and rigor. It's common for advocates of state testing to talk about the need for standardized testing on these grounds. How do we know that students are learning and that teachers are teaching effectively if we don't test them? My own response is that our current system of standardized testing is actually counterproductive. It actually diminishes rigor and has a cascading effect of making public education worse by making everyone within it miserable. I'm a history teacher. I think English teachers get the worst of it because their subjects are the most mangled by these tests. Let's use the example of if you're teaching Shakespeare, all right? And you really want the students to appreciate the human drama of these stories, to really ponder the human experience and reflect on things like tragedy and irony. And in doing so, you become more human and more cognizant of the humanity around you. But in our current system, uh, those goals are relegated to the back bench. Those goals, which truly should be a primary goal, are almost irrelevant because of the robotic standards that are measured by state testing. State testing, which determines a school letter grade, the school letter grade being the primary goal of a K-12 public school institution. In our current system, the public school teacher's job is not to instill a love of learning or an appreciation for reading or a deeper awareness of our common humanity. Teacher's job is not to do that. Teacher's job is not to get students to write well or to become skilled in practical mathematics. No, this is not the public school teacher's job. The job is to get students to get high scores on state tests. And that, my friends, is a miserable job. We have a lot of smart people here in the state of Arizona. If we wanted to, I'm confident that we could figure out a better way to evaluate teachers in schools. We could figure out a way to incentivize rigor without sacrificing the authentic joys of teaching and learning. The only missing ingredient is the political will to actually do it. My name is Billy Robb, and I teach social studies at a public charter school in South Phoenix. We have a couple of guests here, both of them are in the classroom. Beth Lewis is known to uh, listeners of this show. She's a third grade teacher in the Tempe School. She was also a co-founder of Save Our Schools Arizona. Raquel Mamani is also here. She's a PTO president and a substitute teacher in the Madison School District and a board member of Save Our Schools Arizona. She's Born and raised in Nogales. Uh, We have just about a minute each. And and what I wanted to do is kind of get a top line reaction from each of you to this. Uh, I'll start with Beth. uh, But uh, we will we will delve in greater detail into your reaction and and other issues on this. But I wanted to get a top line reaction. We'll go to break and then we'll go in greater detail. Beth. Hi. Thank you. Yeah, I think. Billy is spot on. He's an amazing teacher, and it was really grounding to hear his remarks. Um, I agree with him. I also think we need to look at all of this through the lens of the pandemic and start to understand how everything he lays out as difficult has been exacerbated by COVID 
and the upheaval on, on our classrooms. Raquel? Yeah, so I just, as I heard it was, yes, yes, and yes, um, many points of his just resonated with me as I sat here and was feeling like this prior to the pandemic and and now after and through the pandemic, of course, it just all resonates, resonates even louder. Well, that, of course, has a whole other layer. Hopefully it's one that goes away at some point, though it's increasingly looking like uh, artifacts of the pandemic are going to be with us for for quite a while. And I will uh, observe for our listeners that uh, uh, I'm not surprised by your reaction because there was a whole lot of nodding going on in this room as we were listening to his words. We'll return in just a moment with Beth Lewis and Raquel Mamani talking about the travails of teaching when we return in just a moment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We are back with uh, Raquel Mamani and Beth Lewis, both of whom are, among other things, teachers in our schools. Uh, We just listened to uh, an editorial by another teacher, Billy Robb. The the theme of I got two themes. One really was subsidiary to the other. I think the biggest theme was micromanagement as a frustration. And I see uh, standardized testing really as a subset of that. It is Mm -hmm. it is an attempt to micromanagement through test. Uh, we were talking in the break, Raquel. You, your yes. thoughts on micromanagement? Well, How? Yes. What? Wow, micromanagement. Yes, there's a lot of it, and um, you see it everywhere. And unfortunately, it who's is, doing it? Well, uh, you know, <laughs> it's really um, something that I really want to make sure people understand is not through a fault of the school or the school district. You know, these are things that they are mandated by the state to do. And so, um, you know, they're trying to do their job as best as they can. And then when it gets down to, you know, the teacher level and the huge uh, shortage in, in staffing and teachers. And so now you're trying to do all of these things that you're supposed to be doing while you're trying to do all these other things while you do not have enough staff. And so, you know, everything from getting a Band-Aid on a student, it, you know, becomes a huge issue when you have a paper cut. If you don't have the Band-Aid in your classroom, then, you you know, you have to send it to the you know nurse and then the nurse is dealing with other serious issues. And, you know, it's not the fault of our school or our principal that we don't have Band-Aids in our classroom. It's just a lot of lack of funding and teachers just doing what they need to do with their own funds and not really worrying about the micromanaging and, you know, where... I I see micromanagement and funding issues as really somewhat discreet, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I can speak from my experience um, that... You know, educators across the country are calling out for help. They're saying, we keep having new things added to our plates and nothing is being removed. Um, And I think it speaks to what Billy talked about with these mandates created by non-educators lead to fads. They lead to these for-profit, like every new um, computer program, every new non-science-backed reading program. And it's all this new, shiny um, material and people... I think administrators gravitate towards that and teachers are constantly being asked to do new things. Could you give an example or two? Sure. I mean, even just this year, we our, um, our district 
signed us up for a new math curriculum in the middle of all of this chaos of just getting kids back into the classroom and teaching them how to be kids again. And they said that it's not mandated, but we had to be trained on it. So we're not actually using it until next year, but hey, you can use it and you have to sit through a three-hour training. And by the way, there's four other trainings and we'll be getting them to you throughout the year. And so when we're just trying to put one step in front of the other and say, where are our kids? What did they miss in second grade? How can we reach them to have to wade through all of this extra red tape and curriculum? It it's kind of feels like the straw that breaks the camel's back. Was last year almost a total loss? No. Mm-mm. No. Honestly, the third graders that I have are exhibiting more resilience and flexibility and technological awareness and empathy than kids that I've ever met in my entire life. Um, They are incredible. There are holes in math. There are holes in reading, but those things can be filled in. And that's our job this year. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things I find is that, you know, when people or you hear people focusing on, you know, did they lose a whole year? You know, this learning loss. And, you know, it's quite frustrating having been there when we did not lose a whole year. We gained a whole year of learning how to survive a pandemic, work together, uh, resilient, you know, again, be resilient and and continue to, you know, our students are, are not just sitting there waiting for the new curriculum. They, they've been through a lot and there are a lot of issues um, with the social emotional well-being of students and teachers. And so as you're getting all of these new things that you need to do, some of them even being you need to implement social emotional curriculum and that's great. But, you know, where is the social emotional uh, curriculum for the teacher who's supporting those those schools? And so um, we really need to meet our students where they are at. And our students, I can tell you, as a substitute teacher that goes into classrooms and has to just take what she has and go with it, uh, they're not they, they are calling out for help as well and finding ways to make themselves heard. Now, you're teaching in Madison. That's strictly elementary school, K-6? Uh, it's a um, K-8, so it's a middle school. And, and, and do you, what, what level are you usually teaching? So um, I primarily teach in the middle school, but can also go to the elementary school. Let me address this particularly, Beth. And the issue is, I mean, were we successful in getting computers to kids and internet access such that you could actually interact with them last year and have a meaningful? Yeah, I would say in the urban and suburban districts, absolutely. In mm-hmm. our rural um, and on reservations, no, there there mm-hmm. was a lot of lack of digital access. Um, the biggest component for, for me, the disparity was having parents that would essentially, you know, mandate that kids go online and be there for classes versus those who weren't able to be there, right? And parents are working other jobs, they're not there all day, and the kids could sort of opt out, go off camera, roll around on the floor, play video games instead of engaging. And I mean, all of that is perfectly understandable. They're kids, right? They and were that being would asked seem to, do to something. reinforce class and educational differences of the, of the parents. Yeah. I can just see the college-educated parents are, are in a greater position to mandate that and Yeah, there are definitely disparities. And I think, you know, that speaks to the micromanagement and all of the this the material we're talking about, which is that we know as teachers how to address all of the different levels in one classroom, make sure every kid is getting exactly what they need. That's what we do. That's Mm -hmm. our profession. And it's I think people don't understand that pedagogy is a science. It is something that is accumulated over years of vast experience and knowledge. And so when 
administrators and, and others are constantly throwing new things at us, we, we sometimes have to get back to the basics and stop with the fads. Um, and I think some of it is tied up in funding, actually, because Governor Ducey keeps playing games with all of this funding. He's saying, well, if you have mass mandates, then you don't get money. Well, if you have quarantine protocols, you don't get money. Well, That's if you're been, a D-rated school, he's been undermined. you don't get money. He's been undermined on that one, hasn't he? On that one, on but, the wrist, but, but he's basically told the Biden administration, well, go ahead and sue me. Mm-hmm. Come grab it out of my cold, dead hands. Mm-hmm. Not so we'll good, see. Have funds actually been cut off anywhere yet? Yeah, there's a, there's a letter going out to Tempe Union and Kyrene withholding $8 million. So we'll see where mm-hmm. that goes. That's well, real money for it's a district real that size. needed yeah. money. It's yeah. real money, especially when we've been in this defunding mode for prior to the pandemic and, you know, way before this happened. And so our schools have been in crisis way before this started, you know, but the pandemic has just really, like Beth said, is the straw that, you know, that broke the camel's back. And, and um, you know, it's really sad to watch. I mean, I assume one of the hits was this thing, well, let's get get every kid a computer. Let's get them inter- uh, internet access. I understand some folks stepped up, but that, but that had to have hit the school budgets. Above and beyond. Absolutely. And we don't have any money to spare, right? We're, we're already 50th in the nation in education funding. And as a PTO president, I can tell you it depends on each district. Some districts had the money to do it. Some districts have PTOs that are able to raise money. But what about those districts that don't, that don't have parents that can do this extra work? Uh, again, disparity according Huge. to w- w- the economic status of a, of a given district. We will return with teachers Beth Lewis and Raquel Mamani after the break in the Think Tank. Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Beth Lewis and Raquel Mamani, uh, both teachers in our schools. want to start with you, Beth. A lot of this comes down, a lot of the frustration that I'm hearing about is the, the bugaboo of standardized testing. I think the impetus comes from some desire to see some accountability or measurability, which I assume as a as a goal you would not object to, yet I hear constantly that standardized testing is basically a, a big frustration. I wonder if you'd elaborate on that. Yeah, I mean, I think Billy did a great job laying it out, but essentially AZ Merit, you know, one day in April is not an accurate snapshot of what a child learned, and it's not useful data. My district does um, a better job of having benchmarks throughout the year um, that show a child's growth, and we actually use that data. Um, but you know, as the system currently stands, the standardized testing does just promote this emphasis on um, you know test scores and this like rote learning, very not higher order thinking, um, and not really what teachers want to be teaching. Right? It takes a lot of the passion out of it. It takes a lot of the um, really in-depth love of learning that most teachers are, are really in it for, which can be really exhausting. Um, I was telling you, but, you know, in talking with colleagues around the state, I think educators are are really broken this year because we were told that we weren't going to return to normal because normal wasn't working for teachers and it wasn't working for kids. And what we're seeing now is a real failure across the system to do that. 
Um, I wouldn't blame anybody for that. We're in the middle of a pandemic, but we're all feeling the burden of the fact that it was acknowledged that things weren't working. We were able to... Who who is using passive voice there? It was acknowledged that. Who was doing the acknowledging? <laughs> I think teachers are, are screaming from the rooftops that what we're doing, you know, driven by standardized testing, is not working for kids. Um, and, and we were given the opportunity to reinvent the way we teach online. We were able to do a lot of really cool things, and now it's kind of returning to business as usual without the discussion of what do we need to jettison Right. How business we, as usual, meaning test-driven teaching? Test-driven teaching, mm-hmm. yep. And and last year, we were given a lot of latitude as teachers, at least you know in my experience and talking to others, um, to keep kids socially and emotionally well, to um, make sure that kids were not being traumatized because of the pandemic. And if that meant you had to watch videos or do yoga or do meditation or take a giant chunk of the day to just read a great book, by all means, do it. Mm-hmm. And And it actually... I think led to a lot of us being really close with our classes, online, hybrid, whatever. And now we're coming back into the classroom and it's test scores, test scores, test scores. And, um, you know, kids are still traumatized and teachers are still traumatized. And we should have so much more latitude. But districts are under this incredible burden because they've got money being used as a carrot and a stick for our grades. Let me ask about that. You you reference in one of the things I hear constantly about test. Oh, it's just testing, rote learning, whatever, and it doesn't test higher order thinking. Is it the test themselves? I mean, couldn't wouldn't it be possible to devise tests that measure things that aren't rote learning? I mean, when I think of a a real quality teacher or a really great classroom, I think of. Socratic discussions. I mm-hmm. think of a teacher as a facilitator, right? Most of us do not. We're not didactic. We're not like the cartoons standing up in front of rows of desks and just wah, wah at the kids all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really hard to test that. Like, how did I facilitate conversation? You know, a lot of us are we're supposed to be teaching 21st century skills, right? Communication, collaboration, critical mm-hmm. thinking. It's really hard to test that in a Everybody sit down. You have 25 math questions. Here you go. Right. And not to mention, you know, the districts are also doing lots of te- other testing of their own. So there are really good tests that are already being used. So on top of getting ready for the standardized test, you also have these district uh, benchmarks that you need to do. And as Beth mentioned, you know, watching or putting students through these uh, standardized tests not only takes the joy out of your life, but you have to watch as this takes the joy and you're watching them just lose the love of learning. And that's painful to watch day in and day out. Let me play devil's advocate as a policymaker, okay? I'm a funder or legislator or something. And I'm saying, you know, I want, I hear all this stuff, but I want to know as a policymaker that kids are really learning stuff. And absent some kind of a measure of that, how do I know? Well, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's a good question for all of the systems of learning. You know, why is it that we just want to know what kids in public schools are learning? You know, what about private schools and charter schools? And so, yes, you know, we want to make sure that we have the right answer uh, for what that is and, you know, how to get that. Of course, 
we want to make sure that that students are growing and learning, but there's obviously a better way to do it than what we're doing right now. And so it would be great if they actually talked to the people in the classrooms doing this. I'm sure that we could come up with a better method than standardized testing, but it coming down from the powers that be that this is the the end on be all is just not working and it, it's not helping where we're at. Uh, are you either of you familiar with the FISA test? Drawing a blank. No, won't go there. Okay, international test, and and it supposedly does some of those other things. Okay, if, if, if it's new to you, I won't go there. But um, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's tests out there. I mean, I'm sure that I mean, we could come. I mean, up. I'm think I'm thinking. <laughs> you know, you say, well, this test is lousy because it only tests rote learning. I say, well, isn't there a test? So it, couldn't it be possible to to start with? What do you want the kids to be able to do at the back end? And then couldn't somebody in measurement figure out a way to to measure that? That would and be then great. we have a good test. Yeah, you know the other thing is these. You know, it's AZ Merit now or it's AZM two. You know, it was CAT test. I mean, the, you know, these things have. Not, this is not a new way of them trying to do things. So they just keep changing the name of the test. But for the life of me, also I will say I never bought the argument that Arizona had to customize anything. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, but what you're teaching is no different from what they should be teaching in New Jersey or Massachusetts <laughs> or Kansas. I mean, right. especially when you're talking about basic skills. For me, it's no. more about how they use the test, right? Does mm. this one test need to be the be-all, end-all mm. metric of what a school is doing? Or is there a better dashboard approach, yeah, well, right? Is it teacher evaluations? Is it extracurricular activities? Um, when we put all of our eggs into this one test and then we associate funding with it, it's hard. As a teacher, I can say, you know what? I'm not going to teach the test. I, I refuse mm-hmm. to. I'm going to just do my best every single day to give the kids what they need and it'll suss out the way it'll suss out but then if my principal is under you know direction from superintendents that we need to raise test scores then I'm going to feel that constant pressure and and sometimes we buckle and we you know we tell the kids okay well today we have to do a practice test because you know Mm -hmm. and and inevitably it will we will buckle under the pressure and the kids feel it and we try to not let them feel it but they feel know. it. A well, third grader well, should not feel pressure about a math test. That I, it, their funding for their school is contingent uh, upon it. Well, I always thought it was bizarre that if you have a school and the and the performance, the test is not so good. It seems to me that's an argument for more resources to that school, yes. not less. But we're doing yeah. the opposite here yeah. in Arizona. I we mean, you know, opposite. that's that's kind of like the old bureaucratic dictum that you know employees will will continue to be beaten until morale improves. Mm-hmm. Correct. That's that's the idea. And the other th- analogy that I draw on this is if you ever gone and had uh, some customer service from something like a bank and this just drives me nuts that you go through this thing and you realize you're being walked through this bureaucracy which is set up to minimize the labor that is exercised on the part of the bank and therefore you're dealing typically with very low level employees who have almost no discretion where you have to like practically sign away your life you know, to answer right. your question, security questions, just and then at the end of it, you're asking them what hours the bank is open. Why? Because why do the security questions? Because they don't trust the person to have the judgment 
to decide that there's a difference between giving you some basic generic information in the bank and, by the way, or, uh, you know, uh, transfer all my assets to the Cayman Islands. Those are different (laughs) requests that ought to have a different level of security. And but then on the back end, there's a survey question that you get questions and it's like. Well, was the person who you dealt with polite, you know? And (laughs) my answer is, yes, they were obsequious. They were so obsequious (laughs) that they took up so much of my time that it was annoying. But I don't want to rate this person badly because I know that they are doing exactly what the bank told them to do. I am furious with the president of the bank who set up this uh, idiotic system that that prevents me from getting something done efficiently. And I'm screaming at the at the four walls about how horrible that system is. But the poor schlub who did the call did exactly what you took. And and you never ask me what I think about the system. You only ask me, was the person polite? Were were they knowledgeable? Were they this? Yeah, they were all that. They did exactly what you trained them to do. And what you trained them to do was to make it very difficult for me to get a a simple thing done. I think there's an analogy. There There it is. There is. And actually, (laughs) that's with that energy, that's how we're feeling about, like, how did we get here? And you keep asking they, they, they. And and, and we're all. In that analogy, just to make be explicit about conclusions, it's the teacher. Everything is come to the teacher. Yes. You know, if the schools aren't doing well, it, it must have been something in what the teacher did. And well, wait a minute. There's a whole other, the whole system that that has to do with what happens in the classroom. Teacher is an important part of that, but not the only part. Right. And we're only asking about the one part. Right. Exactly. And, and we're establishing a kind of a one to one relationship between. Uh, the quality of a teacher and what scores they yeah and then you get the big banner on the school right yeah. that says well, hey <laughs> i look at those scores and i say for god's sakes that's a measure of the socioeconomic status of the neighborhood exactly. correct come on exactly. in every single circumstance at a very minimum if you were going to use those as measurements they ought to be adjusted for that or 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 be before or after uh, scores for where the school if the school starts out in the you know in the 30th percentile and they end up in the 40th percentile both of which are below average I'm sorry that's an improvement right they that's grew. somebody doing good growth. things <laughs> right uh, and the lack of funding for those schools or right, anybody rated C D F what we're basically doubling down on the problem right because I mean those, those are the schools are, that need the they need the most resources no. and they're not getting counselors, they're not getting art teachers, they're not getting extracurriculars, field trips. Those are all of the things that they're deprived. And we somehow think that by just giving them three hours of math and three hours of reading every day and teaching to the test that somehow they're going to improve. And anybody who understands education will tell you that that is backwards. And I know there are complexities in this, but we still have a system that's funded by property values. Yep. Correct. And Absolutely. if you live in a neighborhood... That has high property values. You get uh, you get more, more resources. There's some things to make up for that, but it never it never equalizes. And if we were to, it, you know, and, and a true system wouldn't e- a good system, a rational system would start out with capitating per student, and then it would throw in supplements if you've got. Uh, you know, percentage of kids on school lunches or something like something that's an indicator of special needs. You right. get supplements for that. But but the net effect of that is if you know that if you equalize that in relative terms, the Paradise Valley schools would get less money and the parents would never tolerate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want anybody to get less money, right? We, well, rising tide, all but, boats. But, uh, in relative, but, but 
it, yeah. you know, you're going to have wealthy if you equalize. And, and I mean equalize, not in dollar per student, but dollars per student adjusted by special needs and other kinds of things which have greater cost associated with them. In relative terms, wealthier districts are going to get less. Well, we just would like what's promised in the Constitution is, uh, you know, a quality education for everyone mm-hmm. all over, not just in Paradise Valley or Scottsdale, but all over the state. We'll be back in a moment and conclude our discussion with Beth Lewis and Raquel Mamani in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back, a final segment on education with Raquel Mamani and Beth Lewis. Beth, you were the uh, one of the co-founders of Save Our Schools Arizona. There was an initiative several years back, was supposed to deliver a 20% raise uh, to teachers. Uh, did that happen? And what, and, and what is, we're now... Several years out, what have what has been the long term impact of that? Yeah, so folks will remember Invest in Ed uh, tried to put a measure on the ballot three and a half years ago, and then they were successful. Two years ago, Arizona voters voted yes to fund a billion dollars um, every single year for our classrooms, and unfortunately, um, that case is still tied up. It was sued by um, you know. Uh, special interest groups, you know, Ducey folks and the Ducey stack courts have the Supreme Court or sorry, yes, the Supreme Court rejected it. It's now in the lower courts. It's up for them to decide. But I think it's important for people to know that that money never made it to our classrooms. And, you know, it, it might not be likely that it does. And in that case, we're still um, incredibly behind the national average. Even if we got the billion dollars, we still wouldn't be at the national average for education funding per student. So yeah, it's important to people to know that know that. I mean, they got the twenty by twenty twenty. Teachers got that, but that and was that. But the, and by the way, the, the point I'd make about that was uh, it was twenty percent over three years. It was six percent, six or seven percent. It wasn't twenty percent all at once. Not I all. No, that one. was the original request. So right, that and is, it's not commensurate with mm-hmm. you know anything we'd look at, even uh, comparing with other states in our region. Certainly not nationally. We're mm-hmm. still forty eighth in the country mm-hmm. in teacher salary. So we would have been fifty or something like right, that. Right, yeah. Twenty percent of very little is <laughs> right. still Didn't very little. Didn't move the needle much. Well, in over three years, that's quite different. You've got two or three percent inflation per year over that period. It's right. You know, calculating out maybe right. fourteen, fifteen percent total or five percent a year for three years post. Exactly. And, and, you know, we really want that funding for, for programs and for assistance, too. I mean, what people don't realize is that we are sharing counselors with four or five schools. So if Johnny needs help on Monday, he might have to wait until Thursday to talk to the school counselor uh, in the middle of a pandemic. That's something that people don't know, and they don't realize that funding could address that. We have the second most crowded classrooms in the entire country, and that would take $2 billion. That's what experts are saying what to fix that problem. What is average class size and what's ideal? It's, the way it's calculated is weird because it, it works in like our smaller classes, and it works in all of the specials teachers. Mm-hmm. So it says it's 21 uh, students per teacher. The average is more like 15 across the country because of it doesn't mean that there's actually 15 or 21 kids in a classroom, does it's that really, make sense? It's really more. If I understand they work in you, more there's, 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 a, it's taking the total number of students yeah. divided by the total number of teachers or something. Or like, like adults that. in the building, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, I mean, most of our classes are 25, 30, 35 kids. Yeah, I don't see a class smaller than thirty. I mean, yeah. there's no. thirty to thirty-five kids. 
It's still, so a, it's still a meaningful measure, but it's not yeah. it's not what you actually see in a classroom. But it's just understanding, like when we say that we're you know four billion dollars behind the national average every single year, what is the impact on kids? Well, they don't have art teachers, they don't have counselors, they have huge class sizes, they don't have new textbooks, right? And and they also have buses that are falling apart and roofs that are caving in, and that takes real money to fix. So the people that say you can't throw money at the problem are frankly uneducated and they're wrong. Yep. <laughs> so you, you've been in conversations with legislators. What do they say? They say just, we don't, my guess is they say, we don't have the money. <laughs> they say, when is it going to be enough? You want more and more and more and more and more. Uh, we give you, you know, this big chunk of the budget. But, you know, I started as a PTO mom going down to the legislature to figure out why do I have to keep selling all this cookie dough? And I can tell you that the piece of the pie that they keep talking about, they keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So, you know, it's a false narrative. So people think, uh, um, you know, the schools are getting the money and it's all these administrative costs. Wrong. Arizona has some of the lowest administrative costs in the nation. So yeah, everybody's always against administration. Right. And then they impose mandates <laughs> on the- which require administrators to... Right, to when you have comply a quality... with the mandates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have an amazing principal and mm-hmm. she is worth... All the gold in the world. If you have an amazing administrator at your school, your school performs better. It, it's absolutely a valid investment. And the money is not going to the principals and <laughs> no. the superintendents. That's just what they would, you know, they kind of try to put one against the other. And so you have a lot of people pointing fingers. You know, those those uh, school boards are doing mismanaging the money. But in actuality, it's not true. This, these school boards are doing amazing things with the money that they are giving. It's just not enough. There is not enough funding for the needs of regular, The you know, the schools in the good districts are struggling. Well, isn't it true? One of the limitations of what a school board, a school board can impose taxes on property, but there is a constrained limit on that that's so low that hence Hence, the need an override yes. is only necessary because the baseline of what's allowable, yeah, imposed by the legislature, is constrained at an artificially low level. Right, and I'm sure listeners are seeing the bond and override signs all over, and they've gotten their ballots in the mail. And you know, we definitely urge everybody to vote yes on every bond, every override for schools because we desperately need the money. But you know, the sad reality is is that they don't have bonds and overrides in most other states. This is a not a specifically Arizona thing, but the reason that we have to go pound the pavement for bonds and overrides is because the legislature has refused to do its job, which is to fund our schools. So we're left having to come up with creative ways to bolster the budget. And, and back to your to point, it's... And separately for every district. Right, That's and right. it creates huge disparities, right? Our, our, our suburban districts are able to go out to voters and get bonds and overrides passed every single time. And so those kids get new buildings, they get new computers, they get robotics, right? But then in communities, especially our rural communities, where voters are maybe more um, suspicious of a tax increase or something like that, they're not able to pass those bonds and overrides. And then those kids are left without and nobody's coming in to help them. And their PTOs and their tax credits aren't able to fundraise in the same way. And so those kids just do without. So you got maybe 15 seconds or so each. I'll go to you, Rick Well, for, first. If you were to do one thing right now, what would it be? 
Well, I, I would make sure that more funds were going to our public schools. So 90% of Arizona students use our schools, and so I would get some very smart people to rework the formula and make sure that the majority of the funding is going to our public schools. you got 10 or 15 seconds, Beth. Uh, I would elect a pro-public education governor and legislature, which is exactly what we plan to do in 2022. Uh, we'll talk about that more later. That. Okay. Uh, thank you both. Uh, well, this will not be the last time we discuss education in Arizona. This is Mike O'Neill. You can reach me at mikeoneill.org. There's a link there for emails and other communications as well as social media. See you next week in the Thinking.